what is required to have a sense of community? What do you need to feel connected to the people around you? Several years ago, the uh, author and researcher, Brene Brown, delivered a TED Talk that went viral and was watched by millions of people. And in that talk, she told the story of what happened in an African village located in sub-Saharan Africa in the area that we might call the bush. People were living there in a, a daily life that is far removed from what we would know as our daily life. Th- their life did not include the amenities that we know, and so much of their life required them to depend on others. Each morning they would have to travel a long distance to take water from a well and carry it back to their homes. They were depending on one another for food. And you notice that many of the buildings they live in include no doors, no security systems, no block walls. To wash their clothes, the women would travel a long distance to a river and wash their clothes in a river and then scrape them over the rocks. That was their life. But along the way, things began to change. Some people in the village learned how to not just subsistence farm and provide food for themselves, they learned how to begin to farm on a much larger scale. And as a result, the money that they generated from selling the excess crops began to infuse wealth into this developing community, and things began to change. They began to afford to bring in power and purchase appliances. They began to no longer need to travel a long distance to get their water. They were able to bring their water to them. They even got some of the technology that we enjoy when it comes to digital communication. And as life in the village changed and developed, a surprising thing happened. The rates of depression, especially among the women, skyrocketed. And this same pattern has occurred all across the world, especially what we call the developing world. And in another village, in another place, who went through the exact same thing, a pastor remarked in a very profound way. He said, the more resources a person gets, the more walls he or she puts up, and the more lonely they become. It seems that what we need to have a sense of community and connection is need. And when we no longer have need, our sense of relationship and health declines. I've entitled the first message in this series, Look at All the Lonely People. And for those of you with taste and culture, you know this comes from a very famous song, Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Yes, I do look young, but I do listen to good music. And, and I love the intro to that song because I think it so effectively describes so much of our world today. We're not living in sub-Saharan Africa. I don't think anybody here walked miles and miles to get water this morning or wash your clothes this week. And yet we know the exact same experience those people found that though we now have access to all of these amenities, something has been lost along the way. A little over 200 years ago, the world radically changed with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The, the daily life of people in our country changed. Instead of living with your family and working with your family and staying with them, people began to travel great distances to go to factories, and that's where we get our modern work day. It's also where we get our modern school day. And because of this, families began to experience a sense of fragmentation. 
The Industrial Revolution carried into the 20th century with the Great Depression, World War II. And when people began to come home in World War II, they began to move from the centers of the cities to suburbs. And homes begun to look like this, cookie-cutter, tracked homes, all looking the same. This is a fairly good-looking home. But, but from a comparison to 100 years ago, this home looks radically different. Instead of having a front porch, there's a back porch. Instead of having the ability to see all the way around the home, there are now walls. Instead of the gathering place being in front of the house and accessible, it's now behind a locked door, a security system, and 47 ring cameras you can access from your personal cell phone. And that changed the way that we relate to one another. We also began to see our lives speed up and speed up and speed up. I've driven by a lot of these signs, and, and though this was the stock photo I could find, I will tell you, I have never seen that speed when I was looking at that sign. <laughs> this morning, we were driving to church, and my 10-year-old son said, Dad, it says you're going too fast. I'm saying, yeah, Wesley, it does. But life seems to just increase in speed. And the faster and faster we go, what we're discovering is the harder and harder it is to connect. And then we have these these pieces of digital technology that it seems like every one of our relationships is intermediated by. Whether it's with the people who share your last name or your DNA, the friends that live in your neighborhood or the friends who live far away, all of them are intermediated, they're managed, they pass through this kind of device. And what we now know, since Facebook is approaching 20 years old, is that the longer and longer you scroll on one of these devices, the two things that are going up are your sense of anxiety and your sense of loneliness. Now, I want to cut off some of you who are headed to a place right now mentally and let you know a really important fact. There was no gilded age or magical era where relationships were easy, community magically happened, or we all got along perfectly. Let's not romanticize life in the developing world. We, we know this because our partners in Papua New Guinea are still working in some of those places and they deal with profound obstacles to relationships and community. And though some of you may can remember living at a time where, where these were basically on the Jetsons and Star Trek, they weren't really on real life, don't forget the challenges that were present in that day to real relationships. We have a tendency to remember the good stuff and forget the bad stuff. We call it selective memory or nostalgia. But there was no golden age where relationships were easy. But with that being said, we certainly now live in an era where relationships are hard. And so many people battle a profound sense of loneliness every day. A couple weeks ago, I stumbled on a staggering statistic. 59% of people admitted they eat all of their meals alone. The table is the place that we share some of our greatest memories. If you think of the friendships that you have or had, so many of your best memories were around food. And so many of us spend our time eating quickly, on the run, and alone. Another study indicated that 61% of young adults feel lonely every day. Not occasionally, 
Not at certain times of year. Every day. And for those of us who don't necessarily feel lonely, maybe we have relationships. Many of our relationships look a little bit like this. For those of you who live in Arizona your whole life, you have no idea what this is. But for everyone else, what is this red stuff right here? Rust. And rust grows on cars in places that are a lot colder than Prescott. But rust is a great description of so many of our friendships. Over time, distance has been created, time has passed, and though we call those people our friends, the the memories we have are increasingly years and decades ago. And the time between when we talk and the depth to which we talk is only increasing every day. So many of our friends are rusty. They're, They're friendship, but they're not nearly as strong or vibrant or new as they once were. And then there's the city that we call home, Prescott. We know from the Chamber of Commerce that this area grew by 20, sorry, 15% in 2021. I haven't seen the numbers from 2022 yet, but I'm going to guess they're not far behind. I did just a raise of hands poll last year, and it indicated that the majority of you here have moved here in the last seven years. We know that a sizable percentage of our church has only been part of our church for at least two years. So in that environment, what many of you have experienced is you left a place where you had deep community, you had deep relationships, you knew people and you were known by them, and now you're here and you're starting over. And you may live in the house that was your dream house that you fought off four other couples from California for, but you got it. And it's a beautiful home. But it's a big home. It's a quiet home. It's a lonely home. Four years ago, I started the year 2019 with a profound revelation to me. I was lonely. I knew people, and people thought they knew me. But most of those were because of my work. And six and a half years ago, I left the job that I'd been in for 10 years in a city that I'd call home for 14 years, and I started over, and what I discovered was not all of those friendships that I thought were friendships were actually friendships. They were work relationships. They were partnerships. And though I only moved 100 miles, you would have thought I moved around the world. And I left those behind, and the ones that I thought would last forever didn't, and some of the ones that I thought were really superficial still are here today. And that experience sobered me. And I realized that I couldn't rely on my job for all of my relationships because, newsflash, I'm not always going to be the pastor of Cornerstone. So what happens on that day, whenever that day comes, and I hope it doesn't come for a very long time, what happens when that day comes? And I realized that I needed to make some changes. And so over the last four years, I've been radically altering my approach to relationships and community, and along the way, I've heard from so many of you, especially since 2020, 20, who need to do the same. So today, we're starting a new series called Find Your People. Because regardless of how old you are or how long you've been following Jesus, I think it's a challenge in our lonely world to build healthy relationships. And so what we want to do over this day, today, and the next four Sundays, a total of five weeks, is We want to begin this year by talking about how do we develop healthy relationships in a lonely world. 
Because I'm not ready to just throw in the towel that you can't have relationships that are healthy today. And for those of you who are lonely and isolated, I just want to tell you that's not where God designed you to be and you don't have to stay. You may be there today, but you don't have to stay there forever. So here's our big idea as we kick off this series, if you're taking notes. We live in a world of independence, but God has designed us to live with interdependence. We live in a world that's like that village where we are growing more and more independent. We can take care of ourselves. But God has designed us to live differently, to live with interdependence. And so what I'm going to do today is kind of start out this series. I think I'm probably going to raise more questions than I answer. I'm going to scratch an itch more than I'm going to solve it. That's why I want to encourage you to come back for the next few weeks. But today what I want to do is I want to unpack for you the four elements of a biblical vision for healthy relationships. And to do that, we're going to go to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. So if you're new to church or new to the Bible, don't worry, this is the easiest passage to find. It's the very first page. And I think that for those of us who've been around church for a while, we discount how significant and important the first three chapters of the Bible are. Because the Bible really is told in four parts. It's a four-part story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. All too often we tell the fall and redemption part, but we, we overlook Genesis 1 and 2. And we're not going to do that today. We're going to start there. So Kelly's going to help you stay following along if you don't have a Bible. Beginning in verse 26, this is what the book says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The first element of a biblical vision for community and healthy relationships is this. We were made in the image of a relational God. Regardless of what you believe about God, regardless of your relationship with Jesus, you were made in the image of God. And according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God is a relational God. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible. And let me unpack this for you. God is not only relational with us. God is relational within himself. You may have stumbled over this, but in Genesis 1.26, look at the choice of words the writer picked. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I, I didn't become an English teacher, but I'm a writer, and I spent enough time around English teachers to know that our is a plural word. It's not singular. So when God says this, there's no one around to hear him but himself. And so when he says, make man in our image, this is the very first indication of a piece of theology that doesn't get unpacked totally till the New Testament called the Trinity. That we as people who are people of the Bible, who are surrendered to the scriptures, we believe God exists as one person, one essence. But there's three within that essence. There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so before God was relational with Adam, or Eve, or Abraham, 
or Noah or Moses or David or Peter or you or me. He was relational within himself. Here's here's, here's Timothy Keller unpacks this idea. He says, we believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. So the biblical vision from the first page is of relationships, not in a way that's narcissistic or self-centered, but that's mutually giving of oneself and loving others. And so when God calls us to live that way, he's calling us to live out of the image and the likeness he made us in because we were made in the image of a relational God. That's the first element of a biblical vision for healthy relationships. The second one comes on the very next page, Genesis chapter 2. So again, if your Bible's still open, just turn the page over. Genesis chapter 2. Again, Genesis 1 and 2 both give an account of the creation, but they're very different in terms of their tone, in terms of the specifics they draw on. But something interesting happens in Genesis 2.18. This is what Genesis 2.18 records. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the second element of a biblical vision for healthy relationships is this. The first thing God declares not good is an isolated human. If you know the the Genesis 1 account, it's, it's a pattern. It's very repetitive. God creates on the first day. And the passage ends and it says, And God saw everything he made on the first day, and he called it good, and there was evening and morning the first day. And then God creates on the second day. And he says, what I made was good. And then there was evening and morning the second day. And this goes every day through until the sixth day when he creates humanity. When he creates humanity and he puts Adam in the garden, he creates one man, he puts him in the garden. He calls it very good. And then he rests on the seventh day. And then when you move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, you get to verse 18. And it is the very first instance in creation that God goes, "Mm, not good. And the first thing God calls not good is an isolated human. Adam is alone. And God says, this is not good. So from the very beginning, we're getting a precedent that when we live in isolation and loneliness, that's not good. Now, part of God's solution to loneliness certainly involves the institution of marriage. We see that when God creates Eve and and the idea of marriage and the complementary nature of that is present in Genesis 2, before the fall. But the principle here, I believe, is bigger than marriage. Because he doesn't say man is alone and it's not good and therefore your wife is going to meet all of your needs. Because how many of you are married in here or have anybody raise your hand? Your spouse does not meet all of your needs. And if you think they do, you're putting an oppressive, huge weight on them that will crush them. God designed marriage, but he didn't design it to meet every single one of our needs. And yet we live our lives as if that's not true. I said this last week, but I'll bring the point back. 
We're born into this world dependent on others. We will leave this world and die dependent on others. But in between, we do our best to be as independent as possible. And that's part of the reason why as, as we get more technology and we get more digitization and we get more things that used to be science fiction that are now just part of daily life, we're like, man, why are we still so lonely? Because tech can't solve the problem from Genesis 1 that's a soul problem. You weren't designed to live independently. You were designed to live interdependently. It's not good when you're alone. Now, for those of you who like your alone time, and you're like, Scott, you're kind of banging on my alone time. I like my alone time. Let me make a really important side note. There's a big difference between solitude and loneliness and isolation. Big difference. And I know this because I'm an extrovert, and I'm married to an introvert. And I've had to learn that extroversion is not godly, and introversion is not ungodly. Some of you think that way. You tend to judge people who aren't like you and go, man, they just, they're not really godly, you know? But I love how Henry Cloud defines the difference between these two. He says there's a difference between solitude and isolation. One is connected and one isn't. Solitude replenishes, isolation diminishes. When, when, you're, when you're practicing solitude or if you're somebody who needs to have your alone time, you draw away and you get filled up so that you can step back in and give something. And, and that's to build a deeper sense of connection. So for those of you who are super extroverted and you're married or related to somebody who's super introverted, give them their solitude. They'll be better in the relationship with it. But isolation is something different. Loneliness is something different. How do I know this? Because I have been in a room as big as this or twice as big as this, or three times as big as this, and I still felt lonely. Loneliness is about a sense of disconnection that diminishes you, and you can be surrounded by people and still feel isolated. You can have a thousand friends on Facebook and still feel disconnected. And this isn't just a pastor observation. This is just a medical observation. In 2018, before all the craziness of 2020, Great Britain named a minister of loneliness. That's their job. Right up there with minister of defense, minister of education, loneliness. Why do they do this? Because in Great Britain in 2018, before all the events of the last five years, there was a sizable majority of people, we're talking north of 30%, who would go longer than a month without a real, tangible human interaction. And they were beginning to track the impact on the British economy because of this, the medical, you know, down-the-river stuff from it, and it was beginning to move into the Bs, the billions. It was a billion-dollar economic problem, loneliness. Well, how much more have the last five years put gasoline on that? 2014, almost 10 years ago, the U.S. Surgeon General said that the number one threat to American health was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. It's not good when we're alone. And not just good from God's sense, medically it's not good when we're alone. 
Let's go to the middle of our Bibles, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, if you're unfamiliar, is near the middle of your Bible. It's written by the wisest and wealthiest man ever, a man named Solomon. If you tend to be a cynic, sarcastic, negative, or biting, this is your book. So you should read for 2023. You would dig Ecclesiastes. It's dark, kind of morbid. Some of you are like, that sounds awesome to me. But, but here in the middle of Ecclesiastes, this is what the wisest and wealthiest and one of the most powerful men on earth at that time wrote. He said, again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. The third element of a biblical vision for healthy relationships is that the blessings and protections of humanity are only fully available in relationship with others. Here you have Solomon, who was so wealthy, the people from around the world would come to visit him just to see his wealth. I mean, this is like, this is like uh, what was the guy's name? Robin Leach, you know? Rich and Famous Lifestyles TV show. I mean, this was well before that, but that's what was happening. He was so wise, people would bring them their problems from all over the world for him to solve them. You know, he did not have any shortage of women to go through, if you know his status with that. And yet, there was still some missing piece inside of him. Something was missing, despite the wealth and the women and the wisdom. He didn't have anyone to share it with. And so it didn't satisfy him. You know, I'm reading through Bono's uh, autobiography right now. I'm a huge U2 fan. And Bono, one of his best songs, is entitled, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And some of you, that is the summary of your life. You succeeded in your career. You saved lots of money for retirement. You moved to Prescott and you got that house. And you still haven't found what you're looking for. All the things you thought you would one day accomplish, you've checked all those things off the list. And something's still missing. If you're a follower of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross was fully sufficient to forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future, and make it possible for you to live life with him eternally. But God even designed us that we need each other. It isn't just your Bible, you and the Holy Spirit from now till you die. You need people. And listen to the wealthiest and wisest man ever who says, hey, why do you do it all if you have no one to share it with? The blessings and protections of life, they're only fully available when you have people to share it with. And if that hunger is there, that I still haven't found what I'm looking for is there, I would encourage you, beware of numbing that out. Gosh, we are so good at numbing things out. 
with painkillers and busy schedules and visa cards and social media accounts. We're really good at making our lives loud and noisy so we can avoid those feelings and realities we don't want to face. And I wonder for you, maybe if this series, maybe if this morning is a chance for you to tune back into that thing and finally deal with it. Well, it would be incomplete to give you a biblical vision for relationships that didn't include Jesus. Because after all, he is the example of what it means to be a healthy human. And if you have your Bible, so I want you to go to the book of Mark chapter 1. This will be our last text for today. I, I moved to Prescott in the summer of 2016 to, to become the lead pastor at Cornerstone. And my first series was rooted in Mark 1. If you haven't been in Mark in a while, the, the book begins with Jesus being baptized and hearing his identity declared by his father. Then he goes in the desert and he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasts and he resists his enemy, the devil, and, and something new and unique is forged within him. He exits the desert and he begins to declare the kingdom of God is near. But before he heals anybody, before he turns water into wine, before he makes loogies and mud and begins to heal people with a weird spit thing that I'm really glad I never participated in because that's just weird for me. Um, not a germaphobe, but ew, I'll just pass on that one, Jesus. Something interesting happens in Mark chapter 1. That before he does anything miraculous, he does something intentional. Here's what Mark 1 says, beginning in verse 16. As he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Here's the final element of this vision I want to unveil for you this morning. Friendships are actively pursued. They're not passively achieved. Friendships are actively pursued. They're not passively achieved. I'm just so struck by the fact that Jesus could have done anything when he finished walking out of the wilderness. I would have looked for an all-you-can-eat buffet. I would have said, time is short. I need to start healing people and getting the word out. And before Jesus performs any miracles or healings, he starts building a community. He says, I'm going to do this healing and miraculous and teaching thing, but I'm not going to do it alone. And like I said, if you want a model of what it means to be a healthy human, don't watch TV or scroll social media to look for an influencer to model your life after. The example of what it means to be a healthy human is Jesus who is fully God and fully man, but without sin. And so if this is what Jesus did, it should be the model for what we should do. And yet, as a pastor, I know where some of you are. You're like, Scott, you've been talking to me before about relationships, and you just need to know, they are not worth the hassle. They're not worth the squeeze. Have you met people? <laughs> yeah, I have. But here's what I want you to know. If Jesus sought out friends, why shouldn't you? Yes, they're a hassle. Yes, they're work. Yes, 
they surprise you and disappoint you and they love you and they hurt you. But let me tell you what the saddest moment since I've been to Prescott has been. A few months after I moved here from where I used to live, I got a phone call from a woman in the church I used to serve, and she said, hey, my husband has passed away. He considered you a great friend. Would you come do his funeral? Sure. As we start talking, I start trying to remember who this man actually is. The name was familiar, could not remember the face. We started working on the funeral, and and like most funerals, there's going to be a a reading of the obituary, kind of summarizing their life. And I said, well, is somebody who wants to read that? She said, no, he really didn't have any friends. I said, well, have you written that? She's like, no, I'm not a good writer. I said, well, can you tell me about his life? And so I wrote his obituary over the phone that day. Got up down in Phoenix to deliver the message at that funeral, and no one got up to share a single story. As far, he was a believer, so I know where he spent eternity, but it was arguably the saddest funeral I've ever attended. Because he had no one. And for those of you who've been deeply wounded and hurt by other people, I know the temptation is just to keep everybody an arm's distance. But you will miss out on so much if you do that. I don't ever look forward to doing funerals. I just made myself a moment on that day. I said, Jesus, I pray I never have to do one of these ever again. And for some of us, it's hard to build relationships. And we're just like, you know what? It's hard. I'm open to it, but, you know, I'm not really ready to do the work. Well, I just want you to know, we intentionally did not title this series, People Find Jesus. We could have. I just have yet to see that happen. It doesn't happen that people find you. It happens that you find your people. And so what we want to do over the next four weeks is help you find your people because we're convinced that we live in a world of independence and yet God has designed us to live with interdependence. So let me help you get a head start today. In the back of your handout, I've got a couple of next steps. The first one is I want to invite you to take the find your people quiz at prescottcornerstone.com slash quiz. We put together a seven-question quiz, and for those of you who are overachievers, there is no grade on this. It's not pass-fail, A through F. It's just seven questions to get you thinking about where you are with your relationships. Some of them are serious, some of them are fun, but we'd encourage you to take that quiz and just begin thinking about where you are. The second thing is we'd we'd encourage you to identify one thing you're praying for God to accomplish in or through your relationships this year? What's one thing? That if we were sitting here on January 8th of 2024, you'd say, man, this is the prayer I want God to answer for me and my relationships. And then finally, I want to encourage you to commit to showing up for the next four Sundays. And if you're in a community group, I want you to show up for this next period. Because one of the things we're going to get to in the future is often what happens is there's a gap between what we want and the intentionality we pursue. And I can't promise you that your best friend is sitting in this room and that they're going to find you one Sunday. But choosing to not be consistent and choosing to not show up, I believe, is probably not going to take you very far. 
So I'd encourage you to come back next week. Next week, we're talking about the challenge of vulnerability. Why is it so hard to be vulnerable? We want to be the people who overshare. How do we share when people have betrayed us in the past? How do we navigate vulnerability? That's where we're going next week, and I hope to see you there. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this vision you give us in the Word, that from the first page to Jesus and beyond, you show us that we were designed to live life with others. We know that's hard. If we had time today, we could all pass the mic around and share stories of when people got close and hurt us. We thought people could be counted on, but they disappointed us. And yet we know that we weren't designed to live alone. Isolated, disconnected, and lonely. And so for those who are here or watching online, that that is where they are. I thank you that you've given them the clarity to be able to realize it and acknowledge it. And maybe their one prayer that they're going to pray this year, the one thing they want, Jesus, is that you would bring them someone or they would pursue someone that they might develop that relationship with. Thank you for your promise that you never leave us or forsake us. And we pray that you would strengthen our relationships in the year to come. We thank you for giving us this vision, and we pray that you'd help us to pursue it. In your name we pray.